0: If you are between the ages of four to the second grade, you're excused to Kids Club. This morning, I feel like I should start with a little bit of a confession. I I rather struggled to not put shorts on this morning. (laughs) Uh, It was a little bit of a fight. I, I didn't actually try it. I think my wife would have sent me back if I would have. But we are enjoying the great weather. If you have your Bibles, open it up to John 14. That's where we'll camp out this morning. We are uh, walking through a series called The Table, Fellowshiping with Jesus. The idea as we've come to this series is that Jesus, having walked with three years for his disciples, we can't move past that. He spent three years having called these men to himself, having trained them and walked through life with them. These guys watched his ministry. They watched him turn water into wine. They watched him heal the official son in Capernaum. They watched him heal the invalid in the pool of Bethesda. They fed 5,000 at the Sea of Galilee. They watched him walk on water. He healed the blind man and he raised Lazarus from the dead, all in the book of John. So these guys had a lot of experience with Jesus. They walked with him everywhere. They knew him well. So as Jesus brings these guys together in Jerusalem into an upper room to share a meal together, before he heads to the cross, he has a desire to teach them, to train them, and to prepare to send them out into the world. And in so doing, he washes their feet, symbolic of the cleansing that can only be found in Jesus. He passes around a cup which offers forgiveness, again symbolic of the only thing that that Jesus can accomplish for you in salvation. It's helpful for us to start in those two places, for us to realize if if you're joining us now, if you've been walking with Jesus, the important thing is understanding the forgiveness that Christ brings to us. That if you can't move past that, if we can't accept that we are cleansed by him, and that we've been forgiven by him, the rest of it doesn't make sense. So Jesus cleanses us from our sin, he offers us forgiveness, and then he enters into this teaching time to try to put before these men some hard challenges, some hard teaching. This is not Christianity 101, if you will. He challenges them to love one another, not their flesh, but as he had loved one another. So that their very basis for love wasn't rooted in their needs, but in how to express Christ to others. He challenged them not to be troubled. We worked through that last week. To let them know that even though the world is hard, that there are many difficulties before them, that their hope is salvation, their hope was eternity. To teach them that in his father's house there are many rooms, and that he would go and prepare a place for them. And as we walk into John 14, 5, where we'll spend our time this morning, it's evident that the disciples are still confused. In fact, we'll walk into a series where they're continuing to ask questions. And it's funny because these guys, having walked with Jesus for three years, didn't always get it. And it's been interesting studying through this for the last couple of weeks, the number of times I don't always get it either. And then I've come to these questions initially, I would read them and think, These guys are boneheads. Why don't they just listen to what he says? And then I think to myself, I'm just a bonehead. I do the same thing all the time. And I've found myself being incredibly thankful for these questions that these disciples ask that provide tremendous clarity. So having walked away, have Jesus telling the disciples several times that I'm going away. You cannot follow me. Peter asked the question in John 13, 36. He wasn't listening. Now we get to Thomas in 14, 5. Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas, this disciple who gets all kinds of grief for being a doubter. Can I just say the Bible never actually says anything negative about doubting? That Doubting is not a bad thing. Thomas was a truth seeker. And he's to be commended for that. And here again, Thomas is truth seeking. We do not know where you're going. How could we know the way? So somewhere in his mind, Thomas, having been told about the father's house, this wasn't the answer he was looking for. In fact, Thomas was looking for a slightly different question. He, He wasn't so concerned with the destination but concerned with what was he going to do without Jesus guiding him anymore. And we'll walk into some of that passage next week. What is he supposed to do without Jesus guiding him? How does he know the way? And so Jesus answers him. In fact, Jesus answers him very clearly in John fourteen six by saying this. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I'm not just here to lead you, I'm the way. He makes a very definitive claim. I am the way because I am the truth and the life. When Jesus makes this claim, it takes you back a little bit. There are seven great, they're called ego ami statements in the book of John. The seven I am statements. This is the sixth one. In each one of these places, Jesus is making a definitive messianic claim. When he says, I am the way, he, he's boldly proclaiming to d- his disciples and their followers a path of salvation that could only be found in him. It's not to be found in the world. It's not to be found in trying hard or in human experience. It's to be found only in him. Jesus says, I am in the way. Just like in John 6 35, he says, I'm the bread of life. In John 8, 12, he says, I'm the light of the world. In John 10, 9, he says, I'm the door. And he goes on just to make it clear if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. Two verses later, he describes himself as I am the good shepherd. In eleven twenty five, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And in a couple of moments, he'll tell the disciples, I'm the true vine. See, Jesus was making bold statements to these guys so they would have absolute concrete fact about who he was. And to these disciples, that had to mean everything. Because as they were going to walk some of them for the next three to five years, John potentially for 30 or 40 more, maybe 50, they had to know who this guy was that they'd followed. They had to know what he said about himself because it was going to be countered over and over and over again. And friends, we live in that same culture that the disciples lived in where people constantly want to challenge Jesus, don't we? In fact, we live in a bumper sticker culture, so I brought bumper stickers to play with. One of the most common bumper stickers in the United States right now is this one. It says, Coexist. You've probably seen it. The idea in this bumper sticker put out by the people who created it is that all these religions ought to coexist with one another. The sea is a crescent and the star represents Islam. The O is dotted with a karma wheel meaning Buddhism by the way there's multiple versions of this you can go a couple of different ways this is the most popular. The E is an energy symbol with the relativity equation for science. The X is illustrated by the Star of David. The I represents the pentagram representing Wicca or paganism. The S is the Tao symbol and the T is the cross for Christianity. Now, what's interesting about this idea is in American and in our culture, we are slammed with this idea of tolerance. And in fact, the next bumper sticker I've got from you actually comes from a car. And it says, God is too big to fit into one religion. See, this is the day we walk in. And to be fair and frank, it's not really that different from where the disciples walked. Because as the disciples walked around having to deal with Jesus' truth claims, they would walk into all kinds of people who would say Jesus isn't what he said he was. They'd run into all kinds of people who would want to claim Jesus was just a good teacher, he wasn't God. In fact, there are all kinds of heresies that filled the early church that denied either his humanity or his deity or any other aspect of it. And so at some point we have to rest our faith On the reality of the word of God. What does it say? And where will we put our hope? Because if we're going to take this as the word of God. And we're going to rest on it. Then we have to take the words of Jesus. And when Jesus says, I am the way. The is a definitive article. I'm the way. I'm the truth. And I'm the life. When Jesus puts this in the middle of this context of this world they were going to walk into, the same world we walk into, where people want to challenge truth and truth claims, Jesus was definitive. In fact, in Josh McDowell's book, More Than a Carpenter, many of you I'm sure are familiar with it, he puts out the great argument, liar, lunatic, or lord. That if you're going to accept Jesus merely as a good teacher, he'd have to be a liar to make claims like this. Or, he'd have to be crazy. And if you're going to accept that Jesus isn't lying about who he is, or he isn't crazy and delusional, if he's going to make statements like this, and he's going to hold to them, then he's got to be Lord. Otherwise, he's crazy. He's crazy. Or he's a liar. So Jesus is building up his disciples on the concreteness and the permanency of who he is. In fact, on his exclusivity. One of the great challenges of Christianity in our day is the exclusivity of Jesus. And make no mistake about it, the Bible doesn't mince words. Jesus is the only way to the Father no one comes to the father in fact he makes it clear no one comes to the father except through me there's no other way to god and there's no other way to salvation jesus makes it clear to these guys and they would have watched it through his ministry that it wasn't good works or some of the sadducees or pharisees would have been sufficient it wasn't just about being a good person Or maybe Nicodemus wouldn't have needed Jesus. It's not about being a good Muslim, a good Jew, a good Buddhist, or a good Hindu. In fact, the great lie of the coexist is that not a single one of those religions would adhere to the other ones. This kind of an ideology is created by secularism that puts forth that no religion should win. Because we ought to all tolerate one another. The challenge to that is is I've yet to run into a Muslim who's fine with my beliefs. I've yet to really run into a Jewish person who's walking truthfully to to Judaism, who's fine with me saying what I want to say about Jesus. And so on and so forth. I've argued with Buddhists in a Buddhist temple in, in Nepal about the reality that our claims are different. We don't have the same God. So when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he's making a definitive statement. He's making a concrete statement that as believers we have to cling to. We have to hold to. In fact, it's our only hope. Jesus wants his disciples to know that the Father is supreme and that he is the only way. And in fact, if we were to walk more through our Bibles, we'd find the Bible sticks to this claim over and over again. Luke in Acts 4.12 says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. There is no other name which salvation could be found in. Paul in 1 Timothy 2 also echoes into the argument by saying in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Because we live in a challenging time where people are always wanting to argue whether or not these truth claims of Christ could be accurate, but he didn't mince words. He was very clear, and in fact, the Bible over and over again asserts that there's one God, and the only way to him. Is through Jesus Christ. Now, just for a moment, I want to give you what I've jokingly referred to as your bonus theology time. You earned bonus theology time this week based on a phone call I got in my office on Thursday. Every once in a while as a pastor, you get strange phone calls. A lot of them start with, are you a pastor? To which I kind of want to say no. (laughs) They then go to, can I ask you a question? To which I'd again like to say no. I've been reading my Bible and I want to ask you something. Now, from experience, I'll tell you that about 60% of the time, this is going to be a pointless conversation. About 40% of the time, somebody's calling me with an earnest question that we'll dialogue about, and those are actually kind of fun times. The other 60% is somebody calling to lecture me about something or or to to tell me why I'm wrong. And, And it becomes about really clear 15 minutes into it, That there's not a question following their lecture? Well, the man who called me this week was a modalist. In fact, he denied the Trinity to say there's one God who keeps moving around. The challenge to modalism, one is Pentecostals, hold this. This is your bonus theology time, by the way. The challenge to modalism is in these particular cases when Jesus refers to the Father in such a way, or talks back and forth to the fathers, the only way to explain that is Jesus to have multiple personalities. And that doesn't bode well with our theology. The idea that Jesus is sitting on the cross and going, Father, and then like moves to heaven and looks down and says, Yes, it doesn't work well. It, it doesn't work. God can't be in multiple places in that, that way. There's three distinct personalities in the Trinity. Is that hard to understand? Yes. But it's how the Bible teaches us the Trinity. Another, here's second bonus theology time. Because I wasn't sure if he was a modalist or an Arian, so I'll take on both. If you happen to be an Arian, one who denies the Trinity, but does so by claiming that Jesus wasn't God. You have to start in John. You have these clear ego on me statements, because they're good refutations. Because Jesus is taking on the statements of God in the book of Exodus, where he says, I am the great I am. I am who am, and making a significant truth claim. And if you study those well, it's pretty clear Jesus makes a clear case to be God. And if that doesn't satisfy you in the beginning of the book, it starts by saying, in the beginning was the Word. And if you follow the book of John, the first chapter all the way out, you figure out the Word is Jesus. So when it continues, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, you find Jesus to be exactly who he says he is. There's your bonus theology time. Jesus is challenging his disciples with truth. He's preparing them to go out into the world. He's engaging them with the reality of who he is so that he goes into the world. They'll have the chance to react to people, to listen to their arguments, to hear what they have to say, to love them through his own eyes, to see them through the cross, and to answer their questions. A couple years ago as a college pastor, we did a crazy thing we stopped having a summer Bible study. It was a strange phenomenon for us because we consistently had a Bible study for years. But one of the things that I was finding was that my students weren't doing their homework. They weren't doing the stuff we were giving them in order to study the Bible that we were asking. So instead of having a normal Bible study, what we decided to do was do ministry projects. And so we started walking through some projects. One of the first ones was we started feeding homeless people. I I wanted to get these guys' hands and their feet busy. I wanted them to see people through the eyes of Jesus. I wanted them to experience it. Another time, we started doing evangelism. We started doing a lot of street evangelism. In fact, one of my favorite street evangelism stories involves us being in the hood. Now, we're in Fargo, North Dakota, and you may believe you have a hood here. You do not. Um, We were in a neighborhood in a really bad part of Memphis, and Memphis has some of the worst parts of the country. And and we get in there, and uh, this gentleman who's with us, a large African-American man, hands my friend Luke a megaphone and says, "For for this to work, I need you to start talking into the megaphone. And as you start talking in the megaphone, the first thing you have to say is, this is not the police, or people won't come. But if you start with, we are going to tell you about Jesus. For some reason, it brings people out of their houses. We are going to tell you about Jesus. I want to tell you who Jesus is by telling you who he said he was. And he started reading the book of John. John. The fascinating thing that summer about us getting kids involved in this kind of ministry is where I had a group of people who reluctantly studied their Bibles, all of a sudden they started walking into situations where people were asking them questions they didn't know. And they were really kind of bothered by that. So these kids who struggled to study their Bibles all of a sudden started studying their Bibles and calling me and asking me questions. Hey Ben, how how do I handle this? i got to ask this question. I don't, I don't know how to deal with it. Friends, that's what these, Jesus was preparing these disciples for. Because as they were going to go into the world, they were going to do ministry. They were going to have to look people in their eyes. They were going to have to love them. And they were going to have to explain who he was. Church, this is one of the aspects of ministry that we really need. If you find that your quiet time is not as filling as you'd like it to be, one of the great suggestions I would make to you is start engaging more people with truth. Because the more that you'll look at somebody you don't know very well and try to love them and engage them with the questions they have, the more hunger you're going to start to feel in you for truth. Because you're now going to have to engage them with truth. You're going to have to seek out answers to the questions they have. This is the exact thing Jesus was doing with these guys. And in fact, as we move on in this passage, he's going to show them that his purpose and ultimately their purpose, which becomes your purpose. In verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. This verse is actually one of those verses that's really hard to translate out of the original language. We've got a couple of these where the if probably could be translated as a sense. It's a first condition clause. It doesn't matter. It's nerdy. What Jesus is saying, I'll give you the translation in the NIV 84, is that if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. That if you really, really knew me, you would have seen my father. If you really knew me, you would know the heart of my father. If you've been watching me work and love and engage people, you would know my father. From now on, he makes it very clear to them, you do know him. And you have seen him. This know is one of my favorite Greek words. It's gnosko. It's the difference between knowing a celebrity versus knowing somebody personally. See, we can all talk about knowing a celebrity. I don't care who it is. If we want to talk about Adrian Peterson or Teddy Bridgewater or walk into any other facet of things, you could say, oh, I know this person. I know their statistics. I know what they've done. But there's a supreme difference in knowing somebody's and facts about their life And knowing somebody experientially, gnosko, walk with them. Jesus says that having walked with me for three years, having engaged the crowds, having loved the people, you now know me and you've experienced the Father. So church, if you want to experience the Father, experience the Father is to be found in loving people, engaging people. See what people have to say in putting truth out there. The more you know me, the more you know the Father. Philip kicks in, again not understanding well, in verse 8. Says to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. I laugh at that question a couple parts in here where you laugh and go, Thanks for the question. But again, it helps bring us clarity because in verse 9, Jesus responds, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Jesus says, If you've seen me, you've seen my Father. You've seen him at work. You've, seen his, you've heard his words. Continues in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus articulates to him some really good principles of the Trinity. That Jesus and the Father are in fact one. One. There's a oneness to the Trinity. There's a oneness of purpose. There's a oneness in, in meaning. And, and God the Father is, is giving Jesus everything he needs the same way he does us. And he tells these disciples The Father has given me the works, words to speak, He's given me the works to do. And if you struggle with my words, believe His works, which none of them could have denied. They'd watched the Father work through the Son. They'd watched it over and over and over again. And this morning, if you're listening to this, and you've placed your faith in Christ, and you understand him to be the only way to the Father, you understand Jesus to be the greatest truth that exists, and the only real life to live, then you understand that through Jesus you know the Father, and by watching Jesus you know the heart of God, Here comes your challenge. Because in verse 12, Jesus says, because again, this isn't Christianity 101. This is his final teaching to his disciples. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. What is Jesus saying? Whoever believes in me So, church, if you've put your faith in Jesus, if you've trusted Him unto salvation, Jesus is saying, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So, what does He do? Because Jesus makes it pretty clear that if you believe in Him, then you're going to do His work. So, what was His work? In fact, we find walking through this passage that the great work of Jesus was revealing the Father. That Jesus came to reveal the heart of the Father, the love of the Father. And so if you believe in him, you're called to the same purpose. In fact, he gives it again to Him in Acts 1.8, telling them that when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power And you will be my witnesses. So church, if you believe in him, your job is to reveal the Father. And as if that's not enough, Jesus escalates it. And greater works than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father. Jesus sometimes makes these crazy statements that you don't know what to do with. One of them here is, and you will do even greater works than me. This is his word. This is what he declares to you. There are lots of truth claims in it. One of them is if you believe me, you will do the works that I do. And greater work will you do. Do you understand how much Jesus really believes in you? Because of his son? Because of the empowerment of the father? This has nothing to do with your abilities. This has nothing to do with whether or not you're good enough or how much experience you have or what school you went to or what training you have or how much you think you're worth it or worthwhile. Jesus says, if you believe in me, then you know my Father. Reveal him to the world. And it's not about your adequacy. It's about his. It's not about your empowerment, it's about His. It's not about your strength, it's about His. Jesus came to reveal the Father. He wants you to reveal the Father. Not because you're awesome or great, but because He is. It's our job to reveal the Father to the world. This is the... The teaching he has for his disciples. This is why all these guys would scatter into the world. Most of whom to be killed. Because they wanted to go and reveal the Father to the world. They wanted to go into parts that didn't agree with them. That didn't think the way they thought. They wanted to love and engage people who were extraordinarily different. And he wanted to take the love of the Father. And Jesus continues with them in this. It says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now see, this is a good perspective on proof texting. See, if you memorize this verse out of context, you're going to sit around going, Lord, Lamborghini. Lord, mountains. I would love some mountains right now. Uh, Father, I would love a beach. I'd like it in Florida, North Dakota. We're about eight miles apart. But that's not, in fact, what Jesus is saying. This is why we have to hold all of God's truth in the context he reveals it. Because I think in this particular spot, the disciples, having walked with Jesus for three years, having sat for probably an hour into this meal, having heard him talk about revealing the Father, Having heard him talk about knowing the Father would clearly understand what he's saying when he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That if it's your job to reveal the Father, and you're going to own that task, it's going to change the kind of things you're going to ask. You're going to start asking things like, Father, I know it's your heart that the people who live around me, my neighbors, would know you. Would you let me reveal you to them? Would you make yourself known? It would change their prayer requests for boldness and for opportunities to do the work that he had been about, that they'd watched for three years. They saw it over and over and over again. Jesus didn't ask for mind blowing things. He didn't ask for air conditioning. He didn't ask for these trivial physical things. And friends, I got to tell you, God wants to know your heart. I'm not trying to tell you to not pray about those kinds of things. He cares about you more than you'll ever know. But in this case, he's teaching his disciples that in your ministry, as you walk out, as you're doing the work that I'm a part of, whatever you ask, I'll do it for you. If you ask anything in my name, Jesus teaches these guys and shows these guys the truth. He wants them to have definitive truth claims to engage the world. Like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That I've come to reveal the Father and my job in revealing the Father is being passed to you because I'm going away. And next week we'll talk about the help he gives you to do that. But he's now giving that task of revealing the Father to us, his church. So that as Moorhead, as Fargo, West Fargo, Holly, wherever you dwell, wants to know what God the Father looks like, It's our job to reveal it, to show the world by how we love each other, to show the world by how we're willing to sacrifice for one another and for them, that we might be about revealing the Father to a world that desperately needs to see it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for you. We're thankful that you love us so much that you sent your son. And Father, we're thankful for your son who came and lived an obedient life, a sin-free life. He lived a life that none of us could have lived, and he died a death that none of us could have died, so that a broken relationship between us and you could be fixed, so that we could know you. And through the death of your son, we'd know your heart. We'd know that it is your desire that no man perish. We'd know that it's your heart that you love the world so much. And it's not a trite or trivial love, it's a deep and real and penetrating love that gets to the bottom of every one of our struggles and demons and the gunk of our lives. Jesus, you came to reveal the heart of the Father to your disciples. And you passed on the work of revealing the Father to them. I pray that we would be the next generation that picks up the torch and carries it. To reveal who you are to the world. Jesus, thank you for how you loved these 11 disciples. Thank you that you trained them well. And thank you that faithful men recorded the teaching. That we could hear it and we'd know your heart too. Jesus, we are so thankful for your life and we're thankful for your words. It's in your name we pray, amen.